I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians. For a handful of weeks now, we've been in this passage seeing that there is no other gospel but the hope that we find in Christ and Christ alone. And this morning, we're going to dive into what's a rather interesting portrait of early church history, a conversation between two giants of the church, Paul and Peter, and we'll consider together gospel hope for cultural differences. Gospel hope for cultural differences in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. As we walk through this passage together, we'll see this truth, that the reconciling power of the gospel transcends ethnic and cultural differences. The reconciling power of the gospel transcends racial, ethnic, and cultural differences. So if you have a copy of God's word there, Galatians chapter 2 will read, Verses 11 through 14. I invite you to follow along in your copy as I read aloud. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Have you had this experience, perhaps as you go through life, you see headlines, you review the results of elections or what's going on around us? Do you ever feel like in our culture there's a systemic misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian? In other words, there are issues and points of pressure in our culture that intersect our lives as Christians that frankly are from our convictions rooted in the word of God and yet as they intersect the culture, they're points of friction And the world tends to misunderstand those points of friction. So the way the world defines love is differently from the way God defines love. And the way that God's truth intersects our lives is different at different points. And so it's almost like there is the idea in our culture that if you're a Christian, you cannot be marginalized. Because there are so many of y'all that even if you are, you probably deserve it because you probably marginalize someone else. And so we live in a culture where it sometimes feels very difficult. And as we look at the future, it may be that there are occupations or lines of work or places where it's very difficult for Christians to serve. Where historically we've been called to serve and we try to figure out how do we engage with our culture when it feels like there's this widespread systemic misunderstanding. Well, imagine with me this morning that rather than sitting uh, maybe by family members or friends or someone you know or don't know, that you're sitting between two different people whom you've never met. And you, being a good, friendly, outgoing church member, have sought to welcome them. And you realize to your left sits a member of the new Black Panther Party. And the minute you begin to talk to this person, this person is angry. Angry at everything they see in the culture, angry at the number of people in this room that look like you and don't look like them. But on your other side, you meet a radical white supremacist. And you're like, holy cow, what have I gotten myself into? Who am I sitting between here this morning? 
And this person is spewing hate and venom about every person that looks like the person to your left. And as you think about this, you think, how in the world do I love both of these people? How can I, with the extreme poles that I'm sitting between, how do I engage this? Now, what our culture tells us is one side must cancel the other. Now, if you tend to be conservative, we call it standing for our convictions. But other people say, well, we cancel the other side. On the other hand, those who tend to be kind of progressive or left-wing, they call it caring for everybody, but they cancel out the other side. And see, our culture says it is impossible impossible to take people with such stark disagreements it's impossible for them to love one another and it's impossible for us to love both it's impossible for us to seek to serve both it's impossible for us to encounter both with truth that might change their perspectives but God's word says the gospel is a power that transcends all of these things it doesn't leave any of us where we are But what it does is it reconciles us to Christ and in Christ to each other. And now rather than our culture or our differences or our boundaries being the things that define us, what now defines us is the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the great orienting reality in the life of the Christian and in the life of God's people. We find our oneness in Christ. You see, Christ says to both of these people, you are both sinners. You both need to repent and be reconciled to God. It's the same message for both. Well, we find ourselves not with those exact differences, but in a similar situation in the early church. To this point, as we've encountered Paul... Paul has spent time, if you look in the very bottom of this map, you can see Jerusalem in the bottom right corner. You travel above that. Paul has spent a good bit of time in Damascus. And when Paul has told us about events in his life, they've either been in Damascus or traveling south to Jerusalem. Well, now Paul has traveled a good bit further. There's Damascus, and you travel north of this, you can find Antioch. Paul is now in Antioch, and everything that we've seen to this point, Paul has been talking about interactions with leaders in Jerusalem. But now what's going to happen, Paul is in Antioch up in the north, and one of the key leaders in this early church, Peter, is going to travel all the way north and meet him there in Antioch. And Antioch and Jerusalem are not the same place. They aren't inhabited by the same cultures, by the same people. They don't have the same rules. Well, an important piece of background to our story this morning, which is very brief, is Acts chapter 10. The beginning of Acts 10, we meet a Roman centurion. Now, Romans are pagans. They believe in many gods. They don't believe in the one true God. But Cornelius is not like most Roman soldiers. He, God's word tells us, is a God-fearing man. And God appears to Cornelius and tells him to send three messengers to a man named Peter and try to meet with him. And remarkably, about the same time, God appears to Peter in a dream and tells him three men are coming to meet him, and he should welcome them, even though they're Gentiles. But that's not the only part of this dream. The dream for Peter continues, and a sheet comes down from heaven. You ever have a weird dream? I had a few this week. 
Well, in this dream, this sheet is full of animals. It's a child's dream, but it's Peter's nightmare because a bunch of these animals are unclean. And God, in this dream, tells Peter to kill and eat. Kill and eat. Kill and eat. Three times. And Peter says, I can't do it because they're unclean. And the Lord says, no, what I call clean, you can't call unclean. Peter wakes up. Three Gentiles show up at the door. He goes and he meets with Cornelius and this band of Gentiles. Now, seven or eight years earlier, Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes in power and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. It's a remarkable, remarkable moment. And here we are seven or eight years later, same apostle Peter preaching the same gospel to a very different crowd, a bunch of Gentiles. And he preaches, and this is the heart of his message. God shows no partiality. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And if you repent and you believe in this Jesus, you too can be saved. And God's spirit again comes in power. And people are miraculously converted. And on that day, there's a sort of Gentile Pentecost. They receive the same spirit and begin speaking in tongues. Same apostle, two different days, one message. Same effect. And Peter, the lion of the moment, speaking. Now you can imagine, to this point, Jews and Gentiles don't mix. But he stands and he says, can anyone prevent these people who have received the Holy Spirit, can anyone prevent them from being baptized? And of course the answer is no. If they have the one Christ, if they've received the one message, they now have the one spirit, they receive the one baptism. And now they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter is there when that happens. Peter here is directly from God. It leads to what happens. Peter is the one who stands up and courageously says, this is what needs to happen. Peter sees the power of the spirit, the same thing he saw at Pentecost. He sees there among these Gentiles. And now we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 2. And here we've got to understand the basics of what happened. Now in the beginning of verse 12, it's all good. Peter's there, the Gentiles there, everyone's eating together. It's likely that this eating also includes the Lord's Supper. A sign of their unity in Christ. But then something changes. Peter now acts toward these brothers and sisters in Christ with prejudice. Verse 12. Everyone's getting along great. And then certain men come from James. Now we've already seen James figure prominently in Galatians. This is the third time we've seen him. James is the brother of Jesus. And he became a leader in this early church in Jerusalem. They didn't use the term lead pastor, but he's the lead pastor of that congregation. There are times we see him being more influential in that church than Peter. Peter, of course, is also influential there. He's a leading founder of that church. He preached the gospel that led to that church. We encounter pressure now from a group called the Circumcision Party. A nickname for strict Jewish believers. They're a power group. In and around this early church, and though they have professed faith in Christ, they hold strictly to the old covenant ways. 
Acts 15 verse 1 tells us they show up in Antioch, remember this far northern city, not in Israel anymore, and they preach this message, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now remember the gospel, repent and believe the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. This is a different gospel. Acts 15 verse 5 tells us that not only are they professing believers, they're also Pharisees. You see, the circumcision party ain't no party. Peter's afraid. His fear is actually legitimate. It's easy to be hard on him here. But the early church, where did they receive their initial early persecution? It was from Jews, wasn't it? You can imagine that Peter's actions are leading to intensified persecution for the Jews back in Jerusalem. So through some combination of peer pressure and fear of persecution, Peter drew back. He separated himself from Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And what is the effect of this within the church? It's division, verse 13. It's pretty much always true, but we don't sin in a vacuum. Peter didn't sit in a vacuum either. Peter is an influential leader. And his actions lead others to fall into the same, same trap. The rest of the Jews then acted hypocritically along with him. Even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. I mean, Barnabas. These are not the dregs of the early church. These are godly men. This Barnabas is Paul's closest companion at this point. And we know this is not going to be the last time he and Paul have a difference of opinion. But nevertheless, it's significant. These are deacons and elders. One Sunday, you've got Jewish and Gentile Christians in Antioch worshiping together. Eating together. Hanging out and talking together. And now you've got a divided church with a Jewish Sunday school and a Gentile Sunday school. You've got the all-in on the band Gentiles and the choir till we die Jews. It's a divided church. Now Peter is acting against his own convictions. And what's worse, he's acting against God's clear directive. And his actions lead a whole bunch of people down this path with him. What then is Paul's response to this nonsense? He confronts it clearly. In verse 11, we find, I mean, I cannot imagine how awkward this was. I mean, this has to be one of the most awkward scenes in early church history. Paul sees what Peter's doing, and he responds by opposing him to his face. Paul does not gossip. Paul doesn't fret. He confronts this prodigious leader face to face. Well, it's easy to look back and say, well, that's who Paul was. He was an apostle too. But Paul at this point is hardly a well-established commodity. He wasn't known yet as the missionary to the Gentiles, as the apostle to the nations. He's an evangelist and a fledgling, no-name church in Syria. And he steps up 
this no-name evangelist steps up and confronts Peter, that Peter, Pentecost Peter, face to face. And what's more, in verse 14, Paul tells us, I said it before them all. I mean, good night. Can you imagine to this? Imagine what this was like. Paul responds to public sin with public confrontation. So what is it that elevates this to such a high level for Paul? It's verse 14. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, it's possible to distort the gospel with our words, but it's also possible to distort the gospel by our actions and Peter's actions are out of line. See, to this point, Peter has been walking a path. It's the path of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, and you can have eternal life. He's been walking that path. But now Peter has veered off the path. He's walking another path. Now, he knows the true path. He has walked and lived the true path, but he has now veered from this course. And as he has walked off the path, others have followed him. The word for in step with the gospel is the same root word as our word orthopedics. It literally means to walk straight. So here's the gospel and here's Peter. You see, our words can tell people to walk off the path of the gospel. Or our lives can lead people off the path of the gospel. So what is the nature of Paul's rebuke? Verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Paul says, you can't add a thing to the gospel. It can't be a culture. It can't be a diet. It can't be a political party. It can't be a skin color. It can't be a worship style. You can't add anything to the true gospel and still have the same gospel. I mean, presumably, Peter is still preaching the same message that he preached in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Presumably, that's his message. But even though his mouth is preaching the same words, his life is preaching a different message. How then are we to make sense of what happened here? Well, the first thing we need to understand is the heart of Peter's failure. Peter's sin is hypocrisy. Now, that's fairly easy to see. He knew one thing and he acted a different way. But his hypocrisy is rooted in what? In fear. He feared what people might think. He feared what the effect of his actions might be on other people he loved. The bottom line is he feared man, people, more than God. Well, where might this kind of fear pop up in the life of the church today? I mean, one area that God's truth intersects with our lives and cuts squarely against the grain of our culture is an understanding of what it means to be human of what it means to be male and female. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Gender is not merely a construct or an identity. 
It is a divine design from the beginning. God created us male and female. And marriage is one man to one woman in lifelong covenant commitment. Well, this cultural understanding of God's created design also, in less clear ways, plays its way out in the home and the church. God created men and women with equal dignity and equal rights, but also with different roles in marriage and the church. Ephesians 5, 23 and 24, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church should submit to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in everything to their husbands. 1 Timothy 2, in the context of church leadership, Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, these teachings are uncomfortable, but clear. Now, another rather obvious place where this kind of fear of man intersects life in the church today is racial reconciliation. Now, we're going to come back here in a few minutes because God's word gives, a, gives us a remarkably hopeful vision for how this works. But it's fear. Fear is driving Peter's actions. What then is Paul's response? Well, if you walk through this, there's pastoral care just dripping through every pore of Paul's body. It's even more notable when considered in its historical context. I mean, at the time, Paul stands up to Peter. Peter is more than somebody, and Paul is nobody. And the first thing that's really obvious is how clear Paul's response is. He doesn't say, uh, Peter, what's going on? Are you, are you sure about this? No, he clearly and directly confronts Peter. The next thing that stands out is how public this is. Verse 11, I opposed him to his face. Verse 12, I said to him before them all. So Paul is making a very clear, very public scene. Well, how can we call this pastoral care? Well, Paul is motivated by one primary issue and then two secondary issues that flow from this one core issue. You see, it's his pastoral care, it's his concern for the church that leads him to speak up clearly for the sake of the gospel. Paul speaks up to protect the clarity, the truth of the gospel. Verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, while conversion has to do with what it means to become a Christian, sanctification has to do with what it means to be a Christian, with what the gospel produces in Christians, and you cannot separate the two. You see, if there is a moment you place faith in Christ, there will be fruit in this gospel. If we look at all of life as an encounter with the cross, there is a period of time when it's B.C., before Christ for us. We haven't yet, in faith and repentance, encountered the saving gospel. And all of life orients toward this moment when we come to faith in Christ. Ironically, the rest of life also orients to that moment. Colossians 2.6 As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You see, it's not just the moment of conversion. It is a lifelong, even eternal relationship that changes who you are. 
and if this isn't real, this wasn't either. You can't separate the two. And Peter is now walking out of step with this central message. Peter has received, believed, and proclaimed the true gospel. But his growth in Christ now threatens his gospel message. He, a Christian, could live in a way that leads others to reject or misunderstand the true gospel. So the central issue for Paul is the gospel. It's for the gospel. But from this central issue flow two other concerns. And one is for marginalized believers. He's concerned about relationships in the church. Now, remarkably, this is the very same conflict, a different form of it, but the same conflict the church experienced in its very first days, Acts chapter 6. The Greek-speaking widows are being neglected by the church, and they're trying to figure out a way to address it. That's where we get our first deacons. Peter was there. He was there for that early church crisis. But here we are several, several years later, and Peter again is involved. But this time, he's helping create the problem. So Paul speaks up for the outsiders. The Jews see themselves as people uniquely blessed by God. And anyone else, therefore, is less. The Gentiles need to get with the program and adapt to their blessed culture. And the Jews, in one sense, are blessed. But not because of their ethnic heritage, but because God brings salvation to the nations through a Jewish man. Jesus Christ. Now, in this moment, the Gentiles could speak up for themselves, and no doubt some were protesting what was going on or feeling offended. But they're also in a difficult position. For them to speak up, it feels defensive. So, Paul speaks up. He's a Jew of Jews. Verse 14, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is caring for the marginalized, those on the outskirts of the church. And the way the church cares for the marginalized, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the ethnic outcast says so much about the power of the gospel that it can actually affect the gospel itself. Paul's third concern is for the unity of the church. You see, we have a responsible to love everyone, to love our fellow human beings, but especially to brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 6.10, later in the same verse, Paul writes, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. We should. But especially, he says, to those who are of the household of faith. You see, Peter and these other Jewish Christians are dividing what Christ has made one. The ground at the foot of the cross is equal. We don't come as rich and poor. We don't come as Jew and Gentile. We don't come as male and female. We come as sinners condemned apart from the grace of God. We all arrive at that moment and the Bible declares to us we are equal. Deserving the justice of God against our sin. But also equal opportunity. Anyone can be saved through faith in Christ. Jew, Gentile. Male, female, slave, free, all are one in Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been turned off by the behavior of professing Christians. 
I mean, Christians claim to love. It's our God who said, love your neighbor as yourself. But you see a lot that's not loving. As you see this, it's also led you to reject Christ himself. But friend, in spite of what you see sometimes from professing Christians, Jesus actually isn't like us. We're trying to be like him. You see, the Bible says we're all like sheep that have gone astray. We wander. We turn to our own way. But Jesus is the good shepherd. The one who gives his life for the sheep. So we try, and we should try to live out his love and care, but we will always do it imperfectly. I mean, we should be growing more like Jesus. But the best, kindest, most gracious Christian will at some point disappoint you. Because that person is human. But Jesus, the truest human being, is not like that. He can speak the clearest truth with the most gracious grace. He can speak the most difficult reality with the kindest kindness. Jesus is a friend for sinners. Jesus walks closer than a brother. And if you catch us looking at you sideways, know that our God is like the father in the story of the prodigal son who waits with open arms to welcome sinners running to the arms of their heavenly father. Friend, do not let the lie that God's people sometimes live lead you to reject the truth that God is a judge of all the earth, but he welcomes anyone who comes to faith in Christ. Would you turn from your sin, receive Christ by faith? So we've seen what's going on in our text, but I'd like to spend a few minutes here at the end thinking through what this means for us today. How do we chart a course for cultural differences today? If you haven't noticed, it's something we encounter a lot. Now, I want you to think back to a recent situation in my life with me. Because while you didn't live this situation, I have no doubt that there are people in this room that can identify with the situation. Liz and I were talking through recently uh, something fairly low level, as in it wasn't super important, wasn't emotionally tense, there wasn't a lot vested in this. But as we talked, we both were looking at this situation from very different perspectives. And I'm kind of looking at it from over here, and I'm saying, well, why can't you see this? This is really obvious. And she's looking at it from over here and saying, like, no, you're missing this. This is really obvious. And as we talked, we realized, like, we're looking at the same situation, but we're just looking at it from different perspectives. Maybe at some level, uh, virtue of personality, some level, virtue of history, or just kind of the way we're wired or whatever. But we're looking at the same thing through different lenses. You ever have that happen with a friend, spouse, child? You're looking at the same thing, and... It's just like, okay, like we're having the same conversation, but we're not seeing the same thing. Happens, can happen all the time. Now imagine that this sense of difference in perspective could be true also of racial issues in our country. Where we're looking at the same information, 
the same event, but through very different lenses. Imagine that someone grew up in the same place as you, but in a completely different world. Same location, different experiences. Well, that leaves that person with a different perspective. In the end, you may or may not agree, but one thing we can seek to do is try to understand the other person's perspective. And I'm convinced that the conservative evangelical world's farming out of racial issues to the world is a large part of the reason we are where we are today. You see, the church shouldn't be reluctant to engage in issues of racial justice. We should be leading the charge as those who have been united to Christ and to one another. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, it is the primary orienting reality in our lives, and it's God's gift to us. Now, of course those who don't know Christ will chart a different path toward racial reconciliation that looks a lot more like a war of vengeance than true biblical justice, shaped by an understanding of grace. But if we can't talk about it here, it won't get better. So how do we do this? Six proposals for us this morning. And the first is that we must submit to God's word in every area of life. 2 Timothy 3 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. You see, God's word gives us what we need. Not just when we sit in a seat on Sunday morning, but when we walk out of here and we engage a culture that doesn't understand what it's like to sit here on Sunday morning. And that has to be true about racial unity as well. I mean, we could sit here and roll our eyes at the NBA or the NFL and all that out there. But if we don't engage in the conversation from a biblical perspective, we can't pitch a fit when the conversation ends up far afield from what God's word teaches Secondly, strive to listen to others with different perspectives. James 4, verse 1, says it a little better. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It's, it's possible that there are things in our culture that we disagree with that we don't fully understand. And one thing that we've got going on all around us is that we use the same terminology in different ways. So people use the same words, but they mean different things by those words. Try to understand what someone means by those words. I mean, look, the color of someone's skin isn't a crime. For much of our nation's history, it seemed like a crime to have dark skin. There are moments today when it feels like a crime to have light skin. The color of our skin is part of God's beautiful design. White, brown, black, tan. Whatever amount of melanin you have in your skin is a gift from God. But it's possible to disagree with the way someone characterizes the conversation about this 
and still learn from that person. It's possible to take someone who has a completely different experience, completely different way of looking at these same issues and learn from them, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ. For a number of years now, one way I've done this is try to lean into relationships with brothers and sisters of color, even when it makes me uncomfortable. And it often does. And there are times I strongly disagree, but I learn. I understand how to better love brothers and sisters in Christ. And frankly, I'm often confronted with areas in which I need to repent. Now, remember at the beginning of this conversation, of this sermon today, I asked you if you ever felt like there are issues in the life of our culture where Christians are systemically misunderstood. There's a baseline cultural understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I think a lot of us feel that that's true because it's something we see and experience and can identify with. So if that is true, it is possible, quite possible, that there are systemic issues in our culture that people of color confront that we don't. And I'm just saying the reality of our experience has to inform the way we hear their experience. All right, thirdly, let's be honest about our past. Now, I'm not talking about us all as individuals, it may be. I had people in school growing up who were out and out racist. I don't see a lot of that today. But we're the Southern Baptist Convention. Our history is a mixed bag of sound theology, which is good, of global mission, which is good, and racial discrimination, which is bad. It's in large part, why our convention was started in 1845. And the mixing of all these things makes it difficult. When you mix good theology, good mission, and bad race relations, it's, you've got this mix, it's, just, it's this complex web, and it's hard to sort our way through. And it's possible that this mixed bag sometimes saturates into our church cultures in ways we can't see. It's no accident that in the 50s and 60s, a bunch of conservative Christians felt led to start Christian schools. Because in 1954, there was a Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, and a lot of Christians weren't comfortable with integrating schools. And again, there's a mix, because yes, there is indoctrination, there is like worldly teaching that happens, but there's a reason that people felt motivated at that point, in that moment in history, to do this. We just have to be honest about this. Now look, we have a lot to be thankful for. I'm not saying we hang our heads or try to live with some sense of perpetual defeatism or guilt. We've seen a lot of really healthy growth. We should be encouraged by this. But it's also possible that there are some aspects of our history that we're just coming to terms with. So as we do this, how do we think through this? We seek to embody a posture of humility, repentance, and teachability. Remember Jesus teaching about the speck and the beam? I'm not saying you should repent of the color of your skin. I don't think anyone should. It's a gift of God. It's part of God's divine design. But I am saying our posture toward this conversation should be humility, should be repentant when appropriate, and should always seek to be teachable. Seek to learn. And learn with a heart that's willing to repent of any sin that God reveals. 
You see, there's a posture toward these conversations that says, well, I don't care what you give me, they ain't ever going to be happy. Not helpful. Not Christ-like. There's another posture that says, this is difficult. I'm not sure I understand. But to the degree that God gives me grace, I'm going to engage in this conversation prayerfully, humbly, and reasonably. And that's how God's people want to engage with these issues. So how do we do this? Well, we should move the conversation from the public square to our living rooms. One way to do this is to develop personal relationships with people who are culturally and ethnically different than we are. Perhaps it's not obvious, but by now it should be obvious, these conversations aren't best had on Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram, or Snapface chat, or whatever. I mean, these platforms do a great job of ratcheting up the emotion, dialing down the insight, driving us further apart, so instead of jumping into the comments, grab lunch with somebody. Seek out a relationship. Invite someone over to your house. Get to know that person. Ask him or ask her about their experiences. Seek to build a genuine friendship with that person based on love and trust. I mean, do for one relationship what we wish we could do for all. You can do that. Seek out one person. But as we do this, we have to remember the primary orienting reality. Believe in the power of the gospel to produce a Revelation 5 vision. Do you remember where all this ends? We spend so much time meditating on, chewing on, remembering the problems in this world. Or things that rub us the wrong way, you know, that really irritate us. But the ideal for the Christian isn't to preserve some sort of life here. I mean, is this it? We want more of this? No, it's there. There is a much better life coming. It's a better life than this one. We long for another better world. We long for the world of Revelation 5. Where the heavenly host sings praise to the Lamb. Worthy are you. To take the scroll and open it. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall all reign on the earth. So rather than living with this picture, rather than living with the picture of the Post and Courier or Fox News or One America News or CNN or MSNBC or any other picture... Live with that picture. Live with the picture, the vision, the magnificent, beautiful vision of Revelation 5. Let it become your prayer. Let it become your aspiration. Let it become your meditation. And then as it soaks into your soul, seek to engage the perilous, frustrating issues of our day with that picture in mind. Because the power of the gospel has reconciling power that no human words can have. And I promise you, as that picture becomes your meditation, as the word of God soaks deep into your soul, 
It will begin to shape your experience here in beautiful, magnificent, Christ-like ways. That day, not this, is the one we live for. That Christ, not this present world, is the one we long to see. And as we live with that heavenly vision in mind, I promise you we will be more earthly good. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we're sheep. You're a good shepherd. So would you lead us? God, help us always submit to your word, both in terms of what we believe and then how we live it out. Lord, help us as your people not be obstacles to the gospel, but be bright lights shining in a dark world. People need the hope of Christ. Help us shine it clearly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.